of 12 through the book of 1 John. We're going to be, um, we're going to be in the back end of chapter 2 today and jumping into chapter 3. So while I'm kind of doing some introduction, if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be starting in uh, 1 John chapter uh, 2 verse 28 is where you can kind of hold your mark. But we think about this series and where we've been so far, where we've gone as the Apostle John has has challenged us to, to, first of all, believe in the person and the work of Jesus. Like, if you don't get anything else right, get that part right. Believe in Jesus. Believe in who Jesus says He is. And then walk in the light. That was kind of week two. Like, not, not in the darkness. That's not where the children of God walk. The children of God walk in the light. Obey the commandments was week three, right? You, you, you are a child of God. You follow Jesus. You strive to, to say yes to the things that he asks you to say yes to. And you strive to say no to the things that he tells you you should be saying no to. And then week four, it was to know your spiritual status. Be, be firm. Be confident knowing that you are a child of God. And then last week, David would, uh, would warn us through the words of John to beware of the enemies of faith, those who preach a different gospel. And today, as we kind of round the corner on this, on this halfway point, John's going to restate some things that he's already said. He's going to do this throughout the entire book. And so, uh, you know, we're going to approach the, the text. We're going to walk through it verse by verse. But some of the things is going to seem to be a bit repetitive. He keeps saying the same things over and over again. For those of you who are educators in the room, you understand the importance of that, right? While we repeat things over and over and over because John wants us to get it. He wants it, it, it to be planted in our minds and planted in our hearts. And then he's going to start emphasizing some, some, some other realities this morning. And today we're going to retrace his argument that he's, that he's been vying for. Uh, and then he's going to introduce some, this new theme, I guess, that's going to run through the remainder of the book. And that is the theme of being born of God. Being born of God. And the situation that John's addressing in this letter, and, and especially in this section where we're at right now, as David pointed out last week, is there's this group of people who John would say has gone out from us, who went out from us. There's this group of people um, and that they're actively spreading a message it says, yeah, you know what, like we know God uh, because we have the proper access to Him and you don't. That was kind of the message that they were, they were preaching. And so there's this tension now between those who are followers of Jesus, those who are striving to follow Jesus, and, and this, this group who's kind of formed this splinter group, so to speak. There's this tension building, and, and John's addressing it. And he says in verse 28, it's where our passage opens today, And now, little children, abide in Him. Speaking about Jesus. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at, at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John's argument throughout, throughout the book, if you've been following along, is this. You, you, you know who the people of God are. You can tell in two different ways. One way that you can kind of know who the people of God are is what are they doing about Jesus? What are they, what are they doing uh, with Jesus? And he keeps kind of swinging around this idea. It keeps coming back around. If you have the Son, you have the Father. That's what he keeps saying. If you have the Son, you have the Father. If you acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, then you know Him and you will abide in Him. If you deny Christ, then you don't know Him. You don't have him. The people of God are the people who receive the Son of God. And the other way he says you'll know, you'll know the people of God, is because you're going to see this change in their life. 
you're going to see this transformation happen in their life. Not only do, are you going to see how they deal with Jesus as he says he is, but you're going to see it begin to change their lives. God is righteous. Therefore, the people who have been born of God have been so transformed by him that you'll see righteousness in their lives. You're going to see that. God is love so that you're going to see love coming from these people who are his children. God is forgiving, right? And so you're going to see forgiveness come from those who've united their lives to Christ. God is a just God. And so you're going to see these people have a passion for justice and go into the world and carry the light of righteousness in the dark corners of the world. This is what you're going to see. And these and a multitude of other attributes I want to point out, and John wants to continue pointing out too, is the effect and not the cause of being a child of God. It's not, these aren't the things that get you to God. These are the results of you having God, of being in his family, of being a child of his. You bear the resemblance of your dad. And what John was doing last week, and what he's going to continue to do this week, is he's going to amp up the argument. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna get really stark. He's being very black and white here to show this contrast that you are either pro-Christ or you are anti-Christ. He can't see any gray. It's, it's a stark contrast. You are either pro-Christ you are either, you, or you're anti-Christ. You're either on board with Jesus or you're not on board with Jesus. That's the argument that he's trying to make. There's no gray area. And so those who are on board with Jesus, as he says he is, as Jesus says he is the Son of God who came to be a sacrifice for our sins, if you're on board with that Jesus, those are the people who know God. If you reject Jesus, or if you come up with some other alternative version of Jesus, then you're not on board with him. You've come up with a message that is contrary to his message. And you're not a child of God. So you're either one or the other. You're either pro-Christ or you are anti-Christ. You're not just neutral. You're not just passive in the whole thing. You are either pro-Christ or you are the anti-Christ. Those are harsh words. John is being very, very harsh with us. And this week he's going to continue the argument by contrasting how we behave. Our behavior, the stark contrast behind the behavior of the child of God and the one who is not a child of God. You're either living a righteous life, characterized by love, or you're not. So if you're living a righteous life, it's because you are a child of God who is righteous. And if you're living a sinful life, it's because, quite frankly, you're a child of the devil. Not my words. His words, because sin is what he's been up to since the beginning. And so the way the way you're living shows us what family you're a part of. The way you're living, your behavior tells us who your dad is. And John's doing all of this because this group of people who's living this sort of loose life and this loose interpretation of who Jesus is, where they would say they know God, but morality doesn't really really matter like I'm spiritual but it doesn't really matter morally how I live my life and John said no no that's that's not right if you know God and you're in a relationship with him you're going to see holiness come out of your life that's just a natural result of knowing God and being in his family if you're living a sinful selfish hateful life don't claim to be one of his children 
You have a different dad. Your dad is the devil. And so he's setting out these stark contrasts. And he's doing it to force you and I to ask the question, where am I with that? He's being so stark in these contrasts and he's being so abrasive in these contrasts because he wants us to come to grips with the reality to stop long enough to ask the question, where am I? Is my life indicative of these characteristics in a way that affirms who my dad is? Do I, do I, uh, do, do I give off this vibe that, that I belong to God or, or not? That's a question we really need to ask. And the good news, I love what John does here, is he, he immediately gives us that contrast and then he says, there's an opportunity for you to be in this family if you desire. And he goes and he opens up chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, see what kind of love the Father has. So he's, he's kind of laying out the contrast, but he really wants to convince you of how good God is. He really wants you to see and desire God. And so he says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. It says you can be certain of your standing with God. You can be certain. You can be absolute. And John, he was overwhelmed with the love of God for sinners like you and me. That God would bring us into his family and be our father, this is something to be overwhelmed about. This is not something that we just sit back and go, hmm, I think I'll take a note on that. Like John is just blown up by the idea. His heart is just full of life because of the idea that God would love someone like you and me and him. And he had a way with words and, and, and you know, we've kind of, We've kind of cleaned up the bit of the grammar the way he uses it, but some of your, some of your texts might say something like, um, what manner of love is this? In, in my text, it says, see what kind of love the Father has. But it would literally read, where does this love come from? What, what country does this love come from? It's so foreign that that's the only way that John can explain it. It's like, it's from another world. It's, it's outside, it, it's exterior to who we are in this world. And he's kind of forming it up in the shape of a question, saying, man, where did this kind of love come from? What country is this love from? And I love what he does here by saying, beloved. He's, he's trying to be tender as he introduces a challenge to us. He's like, beloved, we are God's children, right? That's what he says. He is tender in his address, but he wants to get the point across. And so he's going to challenge us to, to, to say, look, like, you are a child of God, and He didn't just save you so that you can get an admission ticket into heaven. It's great that that, that that comes with being a child of God, but that's not quite why He saved you. He saved you so that He can make you look more like Jesus now, today, in the here, in the now. That's why He saved you. Your destiny is not to become healthier. Your destiny is not to acquire more things. Your destiny is not to become successful. And your destiny ultimately isn't just to get to heaven. Your destiny is to be like Jesus. And that's what He's vying for. That's what He's trying to point out. To hope in Jesus and to be purified by Jesus' purity is what He says. 
And then John will spend the rest of our passage giving the evidence. Here's how you know. Here's how you can tell. And he's going to give us how we access this, how the availability of this. And so in, in verse uh, 4 of chapter 3, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. How do I get this kind of love that my sins are taken away? How do I get this kind of love that I'm able to abide in Jesus to the degree that I start practicing righteousness? How, do, how did I get there? And it's found in the Christmas story. And John kind of goes on this little Advent tale for us. And we're going to get to that here in just a little bit. I don't know what comes to mind if someone were to ask you, if I were to ask you what comes to mind when you think about Christmas. I don't know what you think about, but most of the time, if you ask someone that question, it's like, well, you know, when I think about Christmas, I think about, I think about family, man. I think about gifts, and I just think about just good times, man. And I think about, I think about little baby Jesus in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. Like, that's what I think about when I think about Christmas. But John's going to give us a one-word, very biblical answer as to how we get to describe how we feel about Christmas this year. So I want all of us to use this word because it's going to be great and you're going to get to see the shock on people's face. The word destruction is what comes to mind whenever John thinks about Christmas. Destruction. And so when someone asks you this year what you think about Christmas, how does Christmas make you feel, you can just say destructive. Christmas reminds me of destruction. Something's being destroyed, right? And it kind of sounds kind of crazy, but it'd be fun to shock people and take a picture of it when you tell them that. But you'd be biblical in saying it. In verse 8, John says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And here it is. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christmas is about destruction. We celebrate Christmas because God wanted to destroy something. He wanted to absolutely obliterate something. We like to say Jesus came to save people, man. Jesus came to bring peace. Jesus came to, to heal people. And that's all good and that's all true. But to save people assumes that they are being held captive or they're in some sort of helpless situation that they can't get themselves out of. To bring peace assumes that there's a situation where there is no peace. To heal assumes that there's some kind of sickness that has to be cut out. That's why Jesus came. To, liberation is going to require some destruction, some tearing down. And that's why Jesus came. And if we're going to be on board with what our God cares about, the attributes of who He is, what He's doing in this world then we need to embrace the reality that God wants something destroyed in this world and in you and in me. And so what did Jesus come to destroy? And the text would just clearly tell us that he comes to destroy the works of the devil. And you're like, come on, Blake, haven't we progressed beyond the little red jumpsuit guy with the horns and the tail and the pitchfork who sits on my shoulder and tries to convince me to go that way instead of that way? I'm like, is that what we're talking about here? I'm referring to what the Bible calls a war that this world is constantly fighting. It's 
constantly fighting. The dark forces at play behind a very thin veil between all of us. And if you don't believe that there's some kind of evil spiritual force at play, then you're going to have to come up with some philosophical system that explains that something as beautiful as the human race would do some of the most horrible things that we do to one another. You would have to come up with some other way, some other system to explain that. How do you explain genocide in Somalia? How do you explain what's going on in Syria right now? How do you explain Nazi Germany? How do you explain the selfishness in your own heart? You see, we all have morals and we violate them every single day. I don't know where you come from or what kind of standard of life you hold to, but everybody has a set of morals, a set of a list of good and bad, and we violate those every single day, don't we? Even the ones we make up ourselves, we violate them. How do you explain that? Apart from some spiritual evil force at work, at play, in all of this, we have these moral standards. And, and listen, there's something very wrong with us, and it goes beyond race. It goes beyond culture. It goes beyond time, and it goes beyond education. A lot of times people want to say educate people's way out of their situation. It transcends all of that. It's a human problem. And the Bible says it's all orchestrated, every single bit of it. And it's orchestrated by the devil. That, that word devil literally means accuser. Or, or if you want to say Satan, that word means adversary. The accuser, the adversary, is at work behind all of the broken, jacked up things that we deal with. And Jesus would just call him the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God of this age. The one who's kind of in charge of what's going on up in here. At the church... To the church at Ephesus, Paul would write this letter and he would describe the devil as this, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he's referring to us. That there's something that is badly broken in all of us and it's all orchestrated. And so what is his work? What is this work that Jesus came to destroy? And he says it. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The work, is, work of the devil is to get you to sin. I know that sounds very high level, but that simply means that there was a mark that we were meant to hit and we did not hit it. That's what that means. That there's something that we were meant to be and we are not what we're meant to be. And the text will elaborate on this. In verse 4 he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Practicing sin is lawlessness, is what John would say. And this doesn't mean that God has this list of rules and laws and that he's just sitting there waiting for you to break, right? Like, oh, did you say a bad word? Well, it says right here, don't say a bad word on my list. And so, buddy boy, you've got to clean that part up, and I'm going to put a mark by your name. Oh, did you just lie because it says right here that you're not supposed to lie? That's not what we're talking about. That's not what John's talking about here when he talks about lawlessness. It, what he means is that God created the world and he created it with wisdom is what Proverbs would tell us. That, that he founded the dirt in wisdom and by creating laws, it, this was to make all things work together in harmony, work together in shalom, in peace. That was the law that he had set in place. Physical laws like, like the earth rotating around the sun and revolving and to give us seasons and to give us 
uh, uh, years and days and evenings. And that they would all work together like the precision of our solar system. All of these things working in harmony with one another. The laws that he set around those to keep them working together in sync. Rain that waters the dirt, that brings forth crop, that feeds the animals, that feeds us. You see that all of it is operating under these laws that God has set in creation. And seeing this kind of rhythm just makes perfect sense. It makes sense to see it that way. When all of creation works as it should, not only does that physical world flourish, but personally we flourish. We, we flourish personally. That men are meant to love and to cherish women. And, and, and when they do that, women flourish, man. And, and women, you, you know, you're meant to, to encourage and respect men. And when you do that, men are encouraged by that. Man, we're encouraged by that. Parents, and when, when, we're, when we're involved in our children's lives, they're, they're meant to be loved by us that we care for them and that we see God's giftedness in their life. And when we see that, we get in there and we nurture that gift so that when they rise up, that they would too serve this world in a way that just kind of brings everybody together and we all win. The laws that God has set in place were meant to make all of creation flourish. When the world works as God ordained it, there is shalom, there is peace in the world. Everything is as it should be. This is what it means to work according to God's law. Lawlessness comes from sin. Sin is the thing that kind of kicks everything out of its motion, out of its rhythm, as they, as they shouldn't be. The Bible says that the devil would come to upend all of this stuff, that he would come to, to, to undo all of it. And it says that he's been doing it from the beginning. And so that automatically hearkens our minds and our hearts to the beginning, right? To Genesis in the garden, right? Meaning that, when, that in the beginning when God created everything, there was that perfect shalom, there was that peace, and the evil one would enter the scene and he throws it all into chaos and in the midst of all of that, what was God's response? Well, here's my list of rules. You guys have messed it up and so you're going to have to do all of these things. I'm going to leave this list with you and I'm going to come back in about a millennium. And you better have it all together. Better get some shalom going in this place. That's not what God did, did he? That's not how he responded to what happened. Instead, he gives us Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And, and pay close attention. He uses a singular male pronoun. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God gives us the first proclamation of the gospel. Right there in that moment, his solution to the human problem is going to be something other than you and other than me. That he has the solution, and it's not going to be a list of rules. It's not going to be a list of behavior modifications because none of that garbage works. We've tried it. It doesn't work. He saw us as lost, and he promises a rescuer. He sees us as broken, and he says, I'm going to promise a healer for you. I'm coming. His solution for our sin is a savior. And that's what he said from the very beginning. I will send a boy and listen to the verb. He will crush the one who deceived you. I am sending a boy who is going to destroy the one who hurt you. How does Jesus destroy the devil? How does he destroy the works of the devil? The text says he appeared. By his appearing, Christmas was this landed invasion. 
And when you read the Christmas story in Luke, it plays out like a musical, man. Jesus shows up on the scene, and everybody starts singing, man. And our whole Advent series last Christmas was all the songs that people were singing when Jesus showed up on the scene. We had Mary singing. We had Zacharias singing. We had uh, Simeon singing. We had angels singing. Everybody's singing at the, at the moment Jesus arrives. But you go to the book of Matthew, and there's no singing. There's only weeping. There, there, there's only the murder of babies and the screaming of women who are losing their children. That's what we see at the arrival of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. You read through the rest of the Gospels and you're introduced to the ministry of Jesus. He's being baptized and the, the heavens open up and the Father speaks from heaven. The Spirit comes and lands on the Savior Himself. And His ministry has begun. He says, I am here to solve the human problem. And what's the first thing that happens? He's sent off into the wilderness where the devil, Satan himself, is waiting to tempt him. Waiting to, to, to tempt him to enjoy the world by repelling all of God's law. All of the things that God had set in place. Satan is offering him everything that he's got in his toolbox. He's like, man, I'll give you everything if you just stop doing the thing that you came to do. And loose translation Jesus says, no, nah, I'm cool, man. I got stuff to do. He gets up from there, sets his eyes on Jerusalem, marches straight into that city, marches straight into the synagogue, grabs the scroll of Isaiah, unrolls it to 61 and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because, I, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim claim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's why he came. That's why he showed up. And he looks at all of them in their eyes and he says, today this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. And he walks out of that place and he wreaks havoc on the kingdom of darkness. He starts doing serious damage on the kingdom of darkness. And at one point in his ministry, Jesus shows up at this church gathering and they're all trying to be real religious and everything. And they ask him like, hey man, what are you here to do? And, and he kind of explains it this way. He says, Picture a strong guy who has a bunch of stuff, has a bunch of things. Picture that guy. Nobody will mess with him because he's a strong guy. He's kind of one of the strongest guys in town. Now picture a stronger guy who shows up at his house, beats the mess out of him, takes all his stuff. I'm the stronger guy. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. There is a strong man who dominates you and me. He has power over you. He rules you. But the stronger one has showed up to take him out and to set you free. And at the appointed time, the strategy was that Jesus would come and the way he's going to overthrow all of this and upend all of this had to do with a cross. It had to do with a crucifixion. At the appointed time, Jesus would turn and look at his disciples and say, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. How will that happen? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore their children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Colossians would say he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, literally making a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them. Death was the greatest weapon that the enemy had, and Jesus took it from him. Death is the greatest weapon that the enemy uses against you and me, and I want to remind you that Jesus took it from him. He doesn't have that power anymore. How did Jesus destroy the work of the devil? By appearing on this earth, by coming, living a perfect life, taking our death, rising from the grave, triumphing over sin and Satan, but not just appearing in that space-time moment. Not just appearing 2,000-some-plus years ago in that time, in that space and moment, but appearing in that same space-time moment where He grabs you individually, where He grabs you personally, as sinful and as broken and as messed up as you are, and having Jesus look at you and say, no more, no longer. No more will this happen. You're with me now. Sin will not dominate you. Pornography is not your master anymore. Your anxiety doesn't own you anymore. The thing that happened in your childhood no longer dictates what your future is going to be. You're with me now. You belong with me now. And John, would pre- he would present this as kind of like a, like, a birth, like a birth moment. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. When God gets a hold of you, he, he transforms you in such a radical way that it's like a whole new birth. It's like a whole new life in Him. That's how it's found. Children, they look like their fathers because they have something of their father in them, right? And in the same way, when Jesus sets you free, you were born of God. You now have something of God in you. You're no longer ruled by sin. And it says those Born of God cannot keep on sinning. Some of you hear that and it makes you a little bit nervous. Whoa. Like, those who are born of God cannot keep on sinning. This might be a problem because maybe, just maybe, you've sinned once you've given your life to Jesus. Maybe. Maybe, just maybe, you sinned before you walked in the door today. And so there's a conflict here. So is he saying that those who've been rescued by Jesus are perfect, sinless human beings? Because it sounds like that. Well, I want to let you off the hook today and say that this verse is not teaching perfection. The Bible's never going to teach you perfection unless it's referring to Jesus. That's it. But it's in this continuous uh, present active, meaning that those who have been born of God don't have an ongoing and unrepentant practice of sinning. That's what he's referring to. Those who've been born of God don't revel in that which Jesus came to give his life for. They don't just remain in there. They don't just give themselves over to it. We don't enjoy, we don't laugh at, we don't soak in the horrible things that Jesus came to give his life for. That's not what the children of God do. So if your life is marked by a progressive and and unrepentant indulgence in sin, know that that's not what the child of God does. That's not who we are. And at the same time, perfection is not the mark that you're walking with Jesus either. I want to make that very clear. But there should always be progress. As I'm walking with Jesus, there should always be more and more progress. So this isn't about perfection and no one's expecting you to be perfect. 
But as a child of God, there's progress. There's more of Him that we want and less of the world that we want. The more we walk with Him. And so how do you fit in all of this and how do I fit in all of this? And the text would tell us, and for those of you in the room who's like, man, I just don't know, like I don't know if I'm even a believer, I got more questions than I know what to do with, yada, yada, yada. The text is just very, very plain when it says, be born of God. You want to know what you do this morning in, in, in light of what we've seen, in light of what John has, has told us? It is to just be born of God. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. John would say in his gospel, in, in the very opening statements, but all, to, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can be born of God only through the finished work of Jesus by receiving him, believing in him. That's where you start today. That's, that's, your, that's your step today. Is to, with all your skepticism, all of your questions, all of your doubts, See Jesus as who he says he is and believe in him. That's where you start today. That's how you beat sin. If you find yourself trying to fight it, that's how you beat it. The only sin that, that can be fought is the one that's been forgiven. Of. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't fight sin apart from Jesus. Don't even try. Don't even come at it like that. It's impossible. If you were able to beat sin then what a shame it was for Jesus to go to the cross, right? We need him for this. So your first move is just to come to Jesus. Believe on Jesus. Receive him. My brothers and sisters, how do we respond to a text like this? What do we do? What's our invitation this morning? We participate in this work with Jesus only by, the text says, abiding in him. Abiding in him. That's why the, the text opened up. I don't know if you saw that. Now, little children, abide in him. Children of God, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. How do I, as a believer, how do you, as a believer, fight sin as you follow Jesus? That word abide literally, literally means stay right here. You get in the hip pocket of Jesus. That's how you fight it. You get as close to Jesus as you possibly can. And I know, listen, man, a lot of you guys, like you struggle, you're, you're discouraged right now because, man, you just don't feel like you're able to overcome this sin or you, you can't fight this sin. But if I were to start kind of prying into your spiritual life about well, how do you practice your Bible reading every day? What does your prayer life look like? A lot of you say it just don't even exist and you wonder why. You wonder why you left out there and you can't overcome this stuff. It's because you're not staying right there. You're not right next to Jesus. And the way you get right next to Jesus is you soak in this word. You soak in prayer. You soak in community with other believers. That's how you experience the nearness of God. You stay right next to Jesus and you press into him. That's our response. That's what we do today with this text. So let's pray together and then we'll we'll close up. Father, we come to you this morning. Uh, God, and it is, uh, God, it is with humble and grateful hearts that, uh, Lord, we, we come before you in prayer and we, we praise you, Father, for, God, all of this wonderful work that you've done as we've seen in this, in this text, uh, the beautiful work of the gospel. 
that at the very beginning that you provided a solution to the human problem. And it had nothing to do with how we were going to work our way towards some kind of shalom in this world, some kind of peace and harmony in this world. But God, you had the, the one and only solution, and that was in your son Christ. Lord, thank you for reminding us that, that Christmas isn't always what it's cracked up to be in our secular world. God, we do look forward to that moment that we get to celebrate the appearing of Christ. But look, God, let it be a reminder for us that there was a lot of things that was going to be overthrown and overcome at His coming. Namely, the brokenness that we walk in. Namely, the sin that we practice, the lawlessness that, that we continue to perpetuate in this world. That you've come and you've sent a rescuer for us. God, even when we didn't even know we needed to be rescued, Father, your work, your plan was in motion. And so for those of us who name the name of Jesus as our Lord and Savior today, Father, we we praise you for that moment. We praise you for these moments that you come into our lives and into our hearts and, and radically transform us in a way that's only explained through the finished work of Jesus. Nothing that we can do on our own would make us good enough. God, I pray that the testimony of your word and the testimony of your saints would be sufficient for those in the room and those who we would, um, that we would cross paths with this week to show how good and merciful and just and compassionate you are. And how you have not turned a, turned a blind eye to this world or to anyone in it, Father, but you desire to save us. God, that starts with us seeing just how broken we are. And so would you, would you reveal that in our hearts this morning? Would you show us, every single one of us, those broken, dark areas that we seem to can't overcome, Father, would you, would you put your light on those situations? And when you begin to work through the power of your Spirit to make us more like Jesus. God, that is the purpose for why you've left us here after you've saved us, so that we would become more in the likeness of Jesus and that we may point others to, to how awesome he is, Father. So, Father, over these next few moments, we sing songs. We consider the words that you've given us uh, this morning. Lord, would you use them in a way that's supernatural? Would you use them in a way that's saving? Would you use them in a way that's affirming to us? We trust you, Father. We trust you with our lives, and we trust you with the calling that you've placed on our lives. And so would you, would you, would you do what seems good to you in these moments? We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.